to the beginning. Turn, if you would, please, to Song of Solomon, chapter number 1. And there isn't a handout tonight. Um, there really, I don't know that it would be at all conducive to hand out. I want to try and do a little bit of a summary and a conclusion uh, to the book. So just the first verse to start, we will look at some other verses in the course of the Time tonight, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And let's pray. Our Lord God, again, we ask for your help uh, to understand this book, to think rightly about it, and to appreciate it for all that it is, both as the Word of God and poetry. And help us to then think properly and consciously about it. Pray your help tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So I just wanted to kind of end this by returning to what is really the, or at least we tend to think that it is the critical issue within the Song of Solomon, and that is how it is to be interpreted. How, How it is to be interpreted. Um, I, I do think in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and, and I am no Paul so right my disclaimer there I am no Paul but in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul said on a couple of occasions that he was, he was giving his judgment he said I think I had the mind of the Lord um, in this area but this would be my this would be my judgment. And so uh, I come to this evening to you making some of those kinds of declarations that, that much of what I'm going to tell you this evening would be kind of how I would understand things, but that's, it's very hard to be very dogmatic about uh, the proper way to interpret it. I am convinced after now seven weeks of looking at it in depth and looking at a variety of journal articles and a number of commentaries that this is a book that has suffered much at the hands of well-intentioned commentators um, <clears throat> because it's the, the, the interpretations are everywhere and they are all over the map. So so let's just begin with the most basic, which we will return to at the very end, and that is this. What is the book about? What is the book about? What is it, what is it ultimately describing? And, and I, we've talked about this, but in, the, in kind of the history of interpretation of Song of Solomon, it has, it has gone through kind of three main trajectories. I think we looked at seven or eight different ways of interpreting it, but for many years, the primary way of viewing it was as an allegory in which every single expression, every single item um, 
was invested with its own deep spiritual meaning. You know, you read pomegranate, but it doesn't really mean pomegranate. You read garden, but it doesn't really mean garden. It means something else. And uh, <clears throat> the, the allegorical interpretations are multiple and colorful and almost always, right, even if, if somebody should get it right, they are not necessarily tethered to anything concrete that would anchor it. And then it has been dealt with as a form of typology, a representation of God's relationship with his people. And in recent days, it has most commonly by conservatives been argued to be a book written primarily about human relationships, about men and women, that the Song of Solomon is written as a marriage manual, that that is the point of the book. <clears throat> um, and and they, the position that they take is that the book never elevates us above that level, right? There's God is not mentioned, um, and none of those kinds of things are mentioned. And, and so I, I, I think you would understand by now that I would not be supportive of the allegorical method uh, simply because there's no consistent explanation for all of the allegories that we find. They are all over the map. But neither am I comfortable with it being kind of at, a, at a, only a human level book. Um, and and I, I think, folks, that quite honestly, chapter one, verse number one, is the foundation of my judgment for that. Right? Why would I say that? Right? And, you know, again, the argument among most conservative commentators and many pastors then in the modern age, in the age in which we live, is that this is a book describing simply a relationship between men and women, and men and women have much to learn about their marriage and their boy-girl relationships from it. And I'm not questioning that. I'm just questioning whether that is the extent of the book. And I would base that upon, number one, the title, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon. I find it personally very difficult to accept the conclusion that the greatest song that Solomon ever wrote never rises above the level of a boy and a girl. I just, I don't know that that, that interpretation fits the title, The Song of Songs which is Solomon's. And, and then furthermore, I'm not comfortable with that because of the very nature of Scripture itself. The Bible is a book to mankind. That is absolutely true. But it is not a book about mankind. It mentions people. It talks about people. But the story, for instance, of the creation of Adam and Eve is not simply the creation of Adam and Eve. And no matter where we go in the Bible, no matter what book we read, no matter what text we consult, if we walk away from that text or book believing that we are the pinnacle of the discussion, we have missed the whole point of the Bible. <clears throat> um, so... <clears throat> To say that Song of Solomon is about men and women in light of God is one thing. To say that Solomon is writing a book to help us in our human marriages and go no farther 
is, I think, an injustice to the very nature of Scripture. Which even in a book like Esther, where you cannot find God mentioned, you cannot read the book of Esther without recognizing the clear providential hand of God, the invisible hand of God in the affairs of his people. That is what the book is telling us, that God cares for his people even in their captivity and in their weakened state. So, um, furthermore, just to continue on in that, so the very title of the book kind of turns me away from that, and the very nature of Scripture turns me away from that. And secondly, or thirdly, I'm not sure that to make this a book only about marriage leaves us in a consistent position with what the New Testament teaches about marriage. And I'm not saying that they couldn't be complementary and that you wouldn't maybe find complementary views there. But one of the most emphatic declarations about marriage is Ephesians chapter 5 in which romance is not even a part of the equation. Covenant commitment is the bedrock of marriage. And if your marriage happens to be one of tender romanticism, that's wonderful. But, but it, is, it is not the mandate of the scripture for marriage. So <clears throat> I'll come, I want to come back to that at the end. But, but in general, broadly, in, in its most simplistic version, I think the Song of Solomon elevates us above mere human relationships that it must be in some way and at some level indicative of God himself and his opinion and his views and the way that we should respond to him. Secondly, I would just point out that our approach to understanding the book must be consistent with the way we interpret every other book of the Bible. And part of our interpretation of every other book in the Bible is to recognize this genre we, we don't, by default, we don't read, or at least we shouldn't read the narratives the same way that we read the epistles, the same way that we would read the apocalypse. We read them for the type of books that they are, and Song of Solomon is poetry. Um, but we, we don't invent a whole new way of thinking about poetry because we find poetry in the Bible, because it is poetry, it tends to be very free in its use of language, in its, in its use of metaphors and similes and other figures of speech. That is the very nature of poetry. The Psalms do that. The Proverbs do that. Job does that. Any poem is going to be like that. Any music, folks, we, I, I will no doubt mention this in the, those times and the weeks ahead when we talk about music. Th there is a liberty to musical expression that does not exist in prose. And even we find that even in the Bible, that there are figures of speech used in the Psalms that would not be appropriate if you tried to just present them as prose. It doesn't, doesn't call into question their, their inspiration or their accuracy. It's just kind of the nature 
of music. It is the nature of poetry. But the fact that a poem uses metaphors and figures of speech does not necessarily invest those metaphors or figures of speech with deep and hidden meanings. I mean, we run into the same problems, folks, when we come to the book of Revelation and begin to allegorize it. That, well, this is this, is this and this is that, and this, you, this doesn't really mean that because you can't take the book literally. And that is, that is one of the criticisms of the future position to go off away from Song of Solomon. That is one of the criticisms that we receive regularly from good brothers and sisters in Christ with reference to future events, that we who hold our view are overly literal in our interpretation and understanding of the scriptures. But I don't know where else to go. I don't know where else to go. <clears throat> All right. In other words, folks, to be quite silly, and I'm being deliberately silly, this is a book about poetry, and it uses figurative language, but Solomon isn't describing an invasion by space aliens. But if you're just going to deal with it allegorically and come up with meanings that ever you, whatever you want, you might be able to find space aliens in the text. If you're untethered by anything remotely... useful in the way we interpret, which is to look at a book in its historical setting, which is part of the problem. We are modern people, not ancient people. We are city people, not agricultural people. Our entire expression of poetry is going to be different. So I want to just take a few minutes and and kind of revisit some of the ways that passages have been handled by a variety of interpreters. And, and what I did here is I, I found an article, and I will tell you privately, I'll even, if you'd like, get you a copy of the article, if that would be helpful to you. But a, but a man wrote an article in, in which he pre- presented to the reader kind of a quiz. And he, he gave the, the reader of the article a variety of options for interpreting a variety of passages. And his question was, which is the right interpretation. So, uh, so turn, if you would, first of all, to Song of Solomon chapter 4. And I'm not going to deal with this in the detail that he did. And I'm not, I'm not going to give you the quiz and read through all the quiz, but, right? but, he, but here are some of the explanations that he highlighted from the text. And I'm just, right, the passage would be Song of Solomon chapter 4, verses 12, down through 5, 1. I'm just going to read verse number 12, and then chapter 5, verse number 1. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Verse number 1 of chapter 5. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. So is this the right interpretation of the passage or not? In biblical context, a garden can also suggest Eden. We are not living there now. The fall has damaged sexuality. 
Yet love and sex are still gifts from the Creator, and a good marriage is like sneaking back into paradise. Similarly, in the overall story of the Bible, the gospel restores believers to a superb garden, a new Eden with no more curse. Is that the right interpretation? I don't know that it is, but but there's an option for you. Or look at Proverbs, or Proverbs, Song of Solomon, chapter 7, in verse number 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, in verse number 8. I said, I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine, and the smell of thy nose like apples. Now this is from a 12th century commentator, back in the days when the prevailing attitude for interpretation was allegorical. But let us for the time being understand palm tree to mean the cross. An interpretation that both makes plain sense to the unprejudiced mind and points to a hidden profundity of unfathomable wisdom. So if you didn't see the cross in the palm tree, you must have a prejudiced mind. Because the commentator says that that makes plain sense to the unprejudiced mind. And I'm thinking, if you locked me in a room with nothing but the Song of Solomon for a thousand years, I don't think I would think of the palm tree as a cross. Or chapter 7. I'm sorry, what, what's that name? Oh, that's, there's my, I'm sorry. I'm reading, cha- I'm reading chapter 8 and verse number 9, trying to figure out why it doesn't say what I got chapter 7 and verse number 9 saying. Chapter 7 and verse number 9. And the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. All right? Is this the right interpretation? In the morning, the sleepers will awake to see the blossoms that signal new life in the spring. Even as divine love manifests most fully in the springtime, resurrection of Jesus Christ at Easter, celebrated with flowers that adorn the chancel, brings new and eternal life. So the sleepers are those awaiting resurrection. Or chapter 7 and verse number 10. I am my beloved and his desire is toward me. Is this the right interpretation? Every doubt and fear is gone. She has found her satisfaction in him and he finds his in her. What a wonderful picture of communion between Christian and his Savior. And again, folks, I would just point out that in virtually all of these, the first thing that the interpreter has done is to typify the message or allegorize the message. To overlook, it seems to me, what is the most obvious 
thing that is going on in there, which is some poetic form of expression of desire or interest or love. Or chapter 8 and verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave, the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath the most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all, her, all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly contemned. So is this the right interpretation? This strong, enduring love is presented in a context that includes marriage, but is broader still. For the Christian, Jesus is our model of love, which is absolutely true. The one who loves all and gave himself for us sets the bar for love in our relationships. That's true. That's not the question. The question is, is that what the text is telling me? That's absolutely true about Jesus. Is that what the text is telling me. So this, this interpretation captures right, solid, biblical, definable truth. The, the question is, can you find it in Song of Solomon chapter 8, verses 6 and 7? Or to go back to chapter 7, and verse number 1, How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter, the joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor. Thy belly is like an heap of wheat set about with lilies. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory, thine eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon. By the gate of Bath-Rabim, thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Right, is this the correct interpretation? Would you find this? Would you read Song of Solomon 7 and write this down as the meaning? Sexual intimacy can and should continue to increase throughout marriage. In contrast to what contemporary culture supposes, sexual intimacy is not just the special prerogative of the young, but should bring increasing delight over time. As a couple comes to know one another better, they learn to enjoy each other more. Now, it just so happens that the man who wrote the article, and all of these are interpretations that he provided in the context of his article, the author of the article insists that that and that alone is the proper explanation for 7, 1 through 4. It is not his interpretation. He says, this preacher's insights make this the correct answer for the passage. He added nothing more to his literal explanation of the verses. He did not enhance his application with a broadening of its application to include the New Testament or with an inclusion of Jesus or with an appeal to the supposed deeper meaning of her navel or with a very clearer vision of very sensual, dancing, possibly naked Shulamite through a Christological lens. He began with a literal hermeneutic and ended with his interpretation, by the way, just I'm not trying to insult you, but hermeneutic refers to the way we interpret, and he ended with a literal application, nothing more and certainly nothing less. But again, for the life of me, 
I do not know how to get that from chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And one of the concerns I have, folks, right? We want to try and bring the same consistent hermeneutic to the Song of Solomon that we would to Psalm number 1, Psalm number 2, Proverbs 1, Job 38, 39, 40, 41, and 42, Ecclesiastes, Right? We come and we accept them as literal and we recognize that figures of speech refer to other things, but they are always other things relative to what to the main subject matter. Now this is just me, right? Because I'm, I'm just talking about some of my conclusions in working through this book. And I had a rather lengthy, I have a pastor friend who is really, truly, very brilliant very well studied, and he's kind of my, my go-to theological help. And we had a rather lengthy dis- conversation about this, but I'm, and, and he thought I was wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway, and then uh, I can get corrected later. I'm not entirely sure that we are doing ourselves any favors by reading all kinds of latent sexual energy into the book of Song of Solomon. And I don't think of myself as a prudish man in really any way. But to, to take language that is certainly an expression of desire and is certainly willing to reference female anatomical parts to then find this hidden sexual expression in everything. Again, this is just me, and I do not really think of myself as a prudish man, but I am, in general, really not comfortable with thinking about God, or quite honestly, to have him thinking about me in sexual relations terminology. And I know that we are the bride of Christ, but I know also, figure of speech, that we are branches on the vine and living stones. That the Bible does use figures of speech to convey real truth, to paint a picture, And part of my judgment for coming to that conclusion is this, and, and this was part of my defense to my very well-versed pastor friend. Supposing that you wrote some very provocative poetry to your spouse. Supposing that you had done that. Supposing that you had wrote to your spouse a very provocative poem. Would that be wrong? And I would argue that the answer to that is no. It would not be wrong. 
Many, many years ago, I, I got asked to speak at a men's retreat, and I went up and spoke at the men's retreat, and one of the men came to me and asked me if it was wrong for him to lust after his wife. No. No, it is not wrong. But would that make your private provocative poem fit for public consumption? If you, if you kept the poem as a treasure because it was written by your spouse, would you share it with your friends? And again, I realized that the Bible is in many ways written to believers, and we're all believers, so there's a sense in which it is not public. But I'm just not certain that Right? It is clearly, I have said this repeatedly, it is an expression of desire, of passionate love. I'm just not sure how much farther beyond that the author intends us to go. To what extent is it necessary to go? What am I benefited by treating it as if it is almost a piece of erotica and then going, but it's not really because it's Bible. Which brings me to this and kind of going back to, the, to my first point. I, I think that the book is about more than simply man-woman relationships. Although we could probably learn something about our relationships in them. But I also think it is kind of inadequate, at least it is to me, to say, well, it's about God, or it's about Christ, or it's about Christ's love. And here's what I mean. Okay, it's about Christ's love, right? We're New Testament people. It's about Christ's love for us. Okay. What does it say about Christ's love for us? To say that it's about Christ's love just doesn't go anywhere. It, it is, to me, completely unsatisfactory because I'm still left wondering exactly what it is about Christ's love that the song is teaching me. And if it's about, in some ways, or if it includes as part of that reciprocity, well, it's about Christ's love for you and your love for him. Okay, I ask it again. What does it tell me about my reciprocity for Christ's love? And I've been hammering on this, folks, almost every time that we have spoken to point out that there is a depth and a complexity to this poem that simply cannot be satisfied in that kind of a statement. Well, it's about God. It's about God. So I would argue that it is certainly a song that describes God and us. But I don't think that a one sentence summary, what's about God and us, is capable of conveying all that is going on in the book. It should include things like expressions of desire for each other are good. 
Desire is good. Expressing desire is good. God has never been bashful about expressing his desire for us. We should not be bashful about expressing desire for him. I love the Lord because he hath heard my cry, said David. Now again, you could extend that to a marriage relationship. And it should be legitimately extended to a marriage relationship. You should desire your spouse in more ways than just physical. And you should express that desire. People like to hear that. People like to know that they're wanted. John 14.3, Jesus made his desire clear. I want you to be with me. I want you to be with me. So again, do we individually, personally express our desire to be with him? But also, folks, an important part of the song is the reality that desire alone doesn't always make for smooth sailing. And I don't think that that does anything disturbing to the Song of Solomon or the realities of Christian living. God is constant. He is never up and never down. He is the same day in and day out. He does not change. But that could never be said to be true of us. I mean, when the Bible talks about humanity, it always talks about us in up and down terms. And when it, in many places, when it explains what it wants for us, it wants for us to be what? Faithful. Reliable. Right? We are, we are in pursuit of something that seems at a human level impossible. Right? A machine-like, repetitive dedication and yet absolute passion. Both together, not one or the other, not one replacing the other, but both. That is the that is the Bible expectation. And when you read the Song of Solomon, there are passages in the poem in which love is desired, the other person is sought, but there are issues to be addressed. And those reflect the very realities of our relationship with the Lord. And this poem also confronts the reality that there is oftentimes frustration and tension, even in loving relationships. The old slogan is, love conquers all, but that only implies that there is something to be conquered. That there are issues to face Obstacles to address, problems to resolve. So I would suggest to you, I would suggest to you that when you when you read it, and right, I mean, I'm hoping that you are at least reading it annually as you go through the Bible, to read it as it is, a poem to read it prayerfully, right? We are always, in all books, whether, right, we need the Lord's help, folks, to understand John 3.16. We need the Lord's help to understand the Song of Solomon. 
But read it and appreciate it for the poem it is, for the beauty of its expressions, for its use of the senses. The, the song sees things and smells things and touches things. And we really should not just race our way through it. It is a tremendous expression of love. And the Lord loves us, and we are expected to love him. This is actually, right, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, strength. And that is far from a simple expectation. And I just want to close with this, folks, because somebody asked me if I would touch on the hymnody or the hymnology of Song of Solomon. And the songbook that we use <clears throat> has, and this I didn't really go any farther than this. I didn't go through it all trying to figure out if there are connections to Song of Solomon. But we only have one song you can turn to it if you want, if you want to look at it, number 251, The Lily of the Valley. It's the only song in the songbook that we have that is directly tied to the Song of Solomon, in which if you go to the index of Scripture, and there's at the end of the songbook, there's an index of Scripture. Here's Song of Solomon, the Lily of the Valley. It's a great song. We, we sing it, and we love it, and it is a beautiful expression of poetry and appreciation for the love of Christ. So I wouldn't have any issue with it. I, and I would point this out, and then I'm, I'm going to be done this evening, right? That if you are interested, Isaac Watts, no surprise there, Isaac Watts has probably written a half a dozen songs um, uh, about the Song of Solomon or extracted from the Song of Solomon, but they don't appear in our songbook. So I didn't, I didn't really get into them. But let him embrace my soul, behold the rose of Sharon. Often I seek my Lord by night. We are a garden walled around. These are some of the songs that I... So, so God's people, and you know, <clears throat> we, we spent eight weeks in the Song of Solomon. And somebody asked me tonight if I was glad to be done with Song of Solomon. Oh, absolutely. I'm not going to lie to you. Absolutely. Um, uh, to, to, to teach through a book like this is, to me, a monumental challenge. Some of the Puritans preached hundreds, hundreds of messages from the Song of Solomon. Many people have found it a beautiful treasure. So, again, I, I, think, I think that it's elevated above just my wife and I, your wife and you, you and your husband. Um, <clears throat> but I think that a simplistic, well, it's about God's love, doesn't quite capture the depth and the depth and complexity that is involved in our loving God. And right, not that He's up and down about His love for us, although we do pose Him challenges. But the fact that we are up and down in our desire and affection for Him. All right, I'm going to stop there.